interesting. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> I'm reading. <laughs> All right. So, <coughs> good afternoon. So here we are at the end of uh, three days of intensive practice. And um, if I put on my glasses, I can see the sparkle in your eyes and the smiles in your faces and the sweetness of your countenance and your presence that, that I can feel. And, um, you know, we've been commenting on how still the hall's been uh, these few days and really quite delightful to sit here with you. And it's beautiful to see what happens after really, even though it might feel like a long time, you know, relatively short period of time, how um, quickly uh, we can train the mind and the heart, how quickly we can cultivate these beautiful qualities of presence, of awareness, mindfulness, kindness, patience. If you think about how you arrived uh, here three, you know, Wednesday night, right? you were probably in quite a different state. Tired, stressed, probably a little haggard, distracted, maybe anxious about the course. And if you compare and contrast that to how you are now, I would imagine you would say probably quite different. I hope you would say quite different. <laughs> maybe not, who knows. Uh, but it certainly seems different from here. So, um, and that's the fruit of your practice, right? We put a lot of effort in here. Re retreat practice, Dharma practice, it's a lot of work. Right? It's not a vacation. And, um, and so you, and I want to salute the, the effort that you put in the work, right? The spiritual work. This is, in a way, kind of, digging the trenches, you know, it's the trenches of the mind of cultivating these wholesome qualities that will permeate and, and influence and ripple out in your days to come in, uh, in back in your life and um, hopefully carry some seeds of insight, of clarity, of understanding, um, perhaps of kindness, and maybe also uh, some reference point for your practice. Sometimes we come to retreat and we connect with a depth of practice or presence or meditation that becomes an, a point of orientation for our daily practice. And, and we can access qualities here that's sometimes hard in the busyness of our day-to-day -day life. So we'll talk more tomorrow about how we integrate that into life, into the rest of our life. Today I want to um, speak a little to um, one way ju uh, this journey can unfold. So um, I've never done this before, but I want to talk a little about my own journey and how in my own practice and path and struggles, how that reveals some ways the, these teachings and the, the practices unfold. So I was just saying to my uh, dear colleagues in the office, um, you know, they were saying, 
wow, you never talked really about your, your practice, like giving a talk on that? It's like, no, I'm English, we don't do that. <laughs> Everything's fine, thank you. <laughs> and, and how are you? <laughs> so, <laughs> here we are. Um, yeah. That's the end of the talk, actually. <laughs> it started, it ended, and here we are. <laughs> and it's fine. <laughs> uh, so I'm working on a new book right now. Oh, I'm playing with, I'm writing in the middle of a book. And uh, my working title, which I just came up with the other day, which I quite like, is uh, imagine the book in big, bold letters. Stop suffering. Stop suffering. <laughs> Mindfulness as a path of transformation. That's the orientation of the book. And maybe you've seen that here, maybe you've seen that in your own practice, uh, that this cultivation of awareness uh, is truly transformative on so many levels. And when we begin a practice like this, we have really no idea where it's going to go. And I certainly didn't when I started. So I want to talk a little about that. So I grew up in northern England, uh, a place called Newcastle, which is a northern industrial working class town, uh, famous for shipbuilding and coal mines and Newcastle Brown Ale, and a terrible football team, uh, which I sadly support. And um, and uh, it was it was a it was a challenging place for me to grow up. I think I was a very sensitive kid, um, somewhat effeminate, and I grew up in a very macho, violent culture. Um, the film Billy Elliot sort of described my life in a certain way. Um, I think I would have been a dancer had I had different conditioning. Um, people from my school left school at 16. They mostly went to work in the shipyards, in the fish market, uh, and um, so I left school at 16. I went into catering because that's what my father did and that's what you did. You follow in the footsteps of your father. And um, so it was, so I found school very challenging. Uh, I, f I was beaten up a lot, psychologically taunted a lot. It was just very painful. I couldn't wait to get out. And have, fortunately, my parents moved down to London when I was 16. They left me. They, they went down. I followed them a year later. And um, I kind of, it was my escape, get out of jail card. And um, that, all that, that conditioning uh, and, and various other things left me uh, with a lot of uh, low self-worth, a lot of self-hatred, self-judgment. And... Um, kind of confused and also angry and um, so I went to college and I kind of clawed my way into college and um, got in, it was the, the punk rock scene was very alive at that time, the anarchist scene was very alive. I joined this squatting movement, there was a lot of, there was hundreds of thousands of uh, empty houses uh, left over from the legacy of uh, socialized housing after the Second World War in London. So it was a huge disorganized mess. And there was just this massive housing empty and a lot of homelessness. And so there was a movement uh, to uh, occupy the houses. And I joined that. 
uh, helped with a nonprofit helping people uh, take over these properties. And as a student, it was really fun to live for free, live in these houses and kind of live in somewhat chaos, but uh, some anarchy. And uh, it was my way of screwing the system. And um, so one day I was in this squat and uh, everyone was a little trashed, uh, stoned. And uh, we were sitting around, and one day the kitchen ceiling just collapsed. It was this old Victorian house, decrepit, you know, we were barely functioning in there. And everyone looked around and was like, wow, look at that. <laughs> it's like nothing happened. <laughs> just disgusting, you know, decades of mess, probably even centuries of decay. Anyhow, I was just leaving to go on, on uh, a trip to Europe, so I left, and I, th I left them to deal with it or not, because it's a squat, you just move to the next house if you don't want to deal with it. Came back, and uh, they hadn't done anything. There was just complete disgusting mess in the kitchen, exactly as I left it, except there was a tiny little space in the kitchen about this size that I could see people would have been using to wash their teacups, because it's England, right? The war must go on, drink your tea, and everything will be fine. <laughs> and I had one of these weird epiphanies that, I mean, such a random moment for that epiphany to happen. It was like, and it was, a, it was, a, it was what Gian, uh, Joanna was speaking to uh, with the Buddha's epiphanies of the four, the four sights of, of, seeing, of seeing, seeing suffering and dissatisfaction and aging and death. And, this, and the moment, the, 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 the sort of epiphany was, there has to be more to life than this. Living in a decrepit, run-down squat with a bunch of stoners and going nowhere. And uh, I didn't even notice that, that aha moment, but I, it, it completely transformed my life. I dropped out of whatever I was doing. Everything took on a kind of a bleak, empty feeling, whether it was going out or partying or drinking or taking drugs or whatever I was into, uh, maybe study, I don't know about that. But, um, and I started seeking. And uh, that squat sort of fell apart, so we just, I moved next door, because that was empty. And it turned out that next door place uh, was uh, owned by a Buddhist housing association. And uh, I didn't really care about that, because I just wanted a house to stay in. But it turns out that, you know, they're Buddhists, they were nice, they didn't kick me out. Uh, it was legal to squat in those days, so you couldn't be kicked out. So we had some negotiations, I got to know this these Buddhists, and I think they took pity on I me. Mean, they said, why don't you go check out meditation class around the corner? And there just happened to be this beautiful meditation center around the corner that uh, at least one of you I know have been to, called the London Buddhist Center, Bethnal Green. Uh, back then it was pretty run down part of London. And I walked into this center, uh, it was 1984, and um, you know, Buddhism, I didn't really know anything about Buddhism, anything about meditation, but I was curious and I really liked these people um, who hadn't kicked me out of this house. And, um, and I walked in and there wasn't anything happening. I just sort of checked out the place, all these Buddhas. It was quite beautiful, quite, quite aesthetic. But the, the people there had a quality of presence that seemed very different than anything I'd noticed, yet come across before. They had a certain sense of awareness and uh, kindness and, and it just a kind of dignity the way they moved around. 
And I knew that they were onto something. I didn't know what it was, but I knew I wanted whatever it was that they had. And so I started meditating and uh, learned the practice of mindfulness, of loving kindness. Um, and it was a revelation, you know, to close my eyes, as I'm sure you can remember when you first closed your eyes, turned the, the lens inwards and began to look at your own mind and begin to feel and study and understand this whole inner world that I'd never even thought really existed that much. So I feel tremendous gratitude for that moment uh, and, those, and that organization for, for turning me onto that practice at such a young age. I ended up dropping out of college. Everything else sort of seemed pretty irrelevant. I, I sort of was, it was enraptured by understanding my own mind. You know, I really projected so much suffering and anger and hatred outside for the confusion I was feeling inside. And as I started to practice, I realized so much of that suffering was my own creation. I had a lot of self-hatred, a lot of self-judgment. I didn't like my body. I didn't like who I was. And I saw how much that was just fueling this despair, this depression. I look at my journals from those days and it was like, it was dire. It was really, really uh, depressing. So starting in that, in that, in that way, um, what kindled was this uh, quality of faith the, the Buddha spoke about these five spiritual faculties which are quite central on the journey. And w one of those, and often what we start with is faith. We have something, some experience, some contact with a person or meditation that, that, that kindles. Uh, in that moment, it was kind of blind faith. I didn't really know what I was getting into, but I had some, some trust that these people had figured something out. And as I learned about the teachings, it started to make sense. Um, it certainly reflected back the, the my suffering wasn't my fault or wasn't just my own, that we all had these habits and tendencies and ways that we create and entrench and worsen our own pain, our own distress. And that there was some kind of map, there was some kind of path, there was some tools and practices that that were really practical and constructive as a way to navigating life. And I hadn't really been exposed to that. I was raised Catholic and I have a lot of love of that, of those, those deeper teachings, particularly the mystical side of that, but I wasn't wild about the church and I didn't really feel like I got much practical tools on how to, how to live. I was given an orientation of how to live, which was you know, with kindness, with love, um, etc. But I wasn't really felt like I, it wasn't felt like I was given the tool set of how to do that, how to manifest that. So a lot of deep appreciation for the the practicality of the Buddha's teaching, of how we can actually cultivate kindness and awareness and letting go and forgiveness and many other tools and qualities. And one of the practices that stuck with me and struck a chord with me and stayed with me all my life is this teaching that I love a lot. And it's a phrase from the Buddha. He says, whatever the mind frequent, when we say mind, we mean mind heart. So whatever the mind and heart frequently dwells and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind and the heart. 
So whatever we focus on, whatever we fixate on, fixate on, whatever our tendency of mind and heart is, that becomes our inclination, our habit, our fixation, our orientation, uh, our way of being. And so it w- it's really, a, 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 I think, a radical question. Where are we inclining our mind towards? What are we giving a lot of attention to? Because what we give attention to grows. When I first, before I started learning about these teachings, I was inclining my mind towards what, what everything that was wrong. I looked at everything that was unjust or painful or depressing. Um, I was broke. I was living in the East End. It was rough. It was very violent. It was racist. And um, I just thought life was miserable. You know. And when I understood this teaching, I began to say, okay, well, that's true. All that's true, but it's only one piece of the pie. There's also joy, there's also goodness, there's kindness, there's beauty, there's love. And um, I, one of my practices was to, uh, as I went around London, to um, try and find things that made me feel joy. What, and particularly, I had a or already back then, even though I hadn't had that much exposure to nature, I had a little bit, and I began to notice the the beautiful things, whether it was the trees, or the bird song, what little remained of it in London, or um, the tenaciousness of grasses throwing, growing up through the cracks in the pavement. Um, and I began to see that, oh, when I incline my mind towards what was good, what was positive, what was beautiful, it shifted my mind state. If I also turn that towards myself and began to see it's not all bad in here. There's also goodness in here and generosity at times or kindness at times. And that's really stayed with me as a very transformative practice. So my family were not happy about this move. So when I started practicing Buddhism, I had a white mohawk and uh, I made my own clothes. I would, I would go into these old disused buildings, take down the curtains, really gaudy, 60s, 70s gaudy uh, material. And I'd make my this wild clothes. It was really fun times. <laughs> I look like, my God, that's what I look like. <laughs> A colorful, chaotic mess, uh, but fun. And, um, and they were fine with that. They're like, oh, you know, Mark, he's a punk. He's going through the phase. It's all right. That's what they do when they're young, you know. When I became a Buddhist, they freaked out, uh, <laughs> which was very interesting to me. I, I didn't quite understand it. They, they, they just were afraid I joined a cult and that Moonies, the Moonies were, were predominant at that time and they were worried I was going to sort of just be sort of lost in some spiritual weird scene and never to be seen again. And it took them a long, long time to uh, be comfortable with it. In fact, good 10 years at least. Um, and um, so that was interesting to, to see. And, and, and I tell people about meditation. And you know, the main thing I got was, well, that's so self-indulgent. That's so selfish. You know? and, and I lived in a culture where the idea of having fun was getting slaughtered drunk a lot, most of the time. You know, go on holiday, get slaughtered drunk. Go out f- for a night on the town, get slaughtered drunk. That wasn't selfish. 
go to go to Ibiza or you know Barcelona. No, Barcelona. Go to Mallorca for two weeks and get completely hammered out of your mind. For you know, that's not selfish. But going on a meditation retreat and cultivating kindness and awareness—that's oh, very very self-indulgent. And I knew something was off with their their criteria. But anyhow, I just you have to let it go. So I studied for about seven years. So I moved into a community. I left college, well, dropped out of college, moved into a community, Buddhist community in, in the country. Uh, I lived with 17 men uh, in, that, in that organization. The mayor, men and women were very much separated at that time. And um, so for three years, I lived in various communities uh, uh, of uh, all men, all male, uh, at least male identified. And... Um, and that was a learning in itself, how to live in community. So we w- I wasn't just learning to meditate, I was also learning how to relate to people and how to communicate. And one of the things I really appreciated about those teachings was an emphasis on positive communication. Positive as in avoiding communication that was negative, gossiping, backbiting, uh, etc. Which actually made me somewhat estranged from a lot of my friends because you know, most of the time when I was at college, most of the conversation was pretty negative. It was bitching and backbiting and gossiping and, uh, and I just sort of dropped out of that scene. I, I realized that was kind of toxic t- to my mind state. So I really appreciated living in community and learning um, in a much harder way you know, how to live this practice. You know, it made meditation seem relatively easy, sort of. You know, but actually having to live with people <laughs> day in, day out and have to communicate and be kind and be aware and have one's blind spots pointed out a lot, which I did because I was 20 and kind of, you know, naive and a little uh, unaware. And, um, but it was great training. So I uh, did that for some years. And then at some point I felt a niche to uh, find more sort of what I, w- I was wanting to st- go back to the source and, and go to Asia, go to India and places where Buddhism had been practiced uh, for thousands of years. And so I, I took a pilgrimage to India uh, and Nepal and, and, and practiced in various places uh, in, in Southeast Asia uh, and then uh, stumbled upon um, my first Vipassana teacher, uh, Christopher Titmus, who is a very uh, powerful uh, teacher from England. Uh, he would teach in Bodh Gaya where the Buddha uh, attained awakening many thousands of years ago. And he would lead these 20 day retreats every January. So I went there um, and uh, I'd never really done that long a silent retreat. And it was a little intimidating. And it was very, also very powerful. I remember driving on the bus to Bodh Gaya and Bodhgaya for Buddhists is a very holy place because it's it's the it, you know it's the seed from which all these teachings uh, flowered from his awakening. It's beautiful, and I remember driving up in the bus and seeing the the stupas, very beautiful old stupa in these temple grounds, and my heart just completely blew open with with again the deepening of faith and deepening of love of these teachings and these practices, and so it was a very uh, precious time to be there, and so I uh, so I went on this retreat with Christopher Titmus, and um, first time I'd encountered these teachings, uh, these insight teachings, and um, 
he's a very powerful teacher and um, uh, and, and practicing there in India was very transformative. Um, having traveled in, in, in Asia for a while, it tends to create a certain kind of openness and, um, uh, I can't think of the word, but not unstable, but vulnerable. Uh, and um, what was powerful about his teachings, and I hadn't really received this quality of teaching before, was he was really pointing to the possibility of awakening here and now, to the possibility of finding freedom in this lifetime, in this moment, and transmitting that in a very beautiful, profound way. And something completely uh, sort of shook up inside around that possibility. Because uh, you know, in, in many Buddhist teachings, the idea of awakening happens over you know, l- countless lifetimes. And it seems very, 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 very far away. And, and to hear someone saying, liberation, freedom, awakening is possible here and now in this life, just kind of just went in like a knife. And um, so it was, it was beautiful and powerful to, to, again, have that faith awoken and deepened. And, um, and at the same time, I was living and practicing in India, and I was finding India very challenging. Uh, on many levels, of those of you who've been, it's um, uh, it's an assault on the senses. This, the, the 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 intensity of um, life and noise and pollution and both beauty and horror at the same time is very in your face. And uh, I was having a hard time. And we it was on this retreat, and I, it was beautiful retreat. And village life was happening all around the temple, and it was really loud, and there was loudspeakers going on all day and all night, and um, I was driving me nuts. And uh, so I was having a lot of aversion, a lot of anger and frustration and hatred, and, and Christopher said, go sit with it, you know, sit in the middle of it. And actually, I think either he or I gave myself the instruction, stand by the gates, so we're this beautiful monastery walls, and then outside the monastery walls, there's village, there's a market, there's um, the water, the well where people were washing and bathing. And, um, and I was having acute aversion just to the, 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 the intensity and not being able to find kind of peace or ground in the middle of it. And he said, go sit with it, like deal, like face it. And so I just do, would do a lot of my standing meditation by the gate, feeling the intensity of life and uh, the noise and the pollution and whatever else was going on. And it was a really profound practice to learn how to turn towards that which is unpleasant, that which is challenging. And then the later, I think it was that retreat or the next retreat. So I'd, I started going back there every year because it was such a profound retreat. And this, this maybe it was the same retreat, I don't know. Um, there was a, the travel agency set up shop outside the temple grounds. They stuck a loudspeaker on top of the, the, the temporary store shop and uh they would broadcast bus tickets you know sales uh to the tibetan pilgrims who were going by every day to to do puja ceremony and uh so every morning would hear like about seven or eight in the morning in the morning they'd be like hello 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 and then some words in hindi and then bombay calcutta delhi darjeeling calcutta wherever my dress, 
and then some more words in Hindi, and then you'd hear it rewind, because it was a cassette tape, because it was the <laughs> 80s. <laughs> I'm aging myself, dating myself. No, 90s. It was the early 90s. Not that old. And, uh, and then it was, hello, 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 hello. <laughs> you go, hello, what? <laughs> and uh, it was really loud. And it was a big room like this, but it was solid concrete, you know, concrete floors, you know, just... And I was hating it. And um, I was like, don't you know there's a retreat going on? We're sort of trying to be spiritual in here and all holy and you're getting us all annoyed and, you know, hello, hello, hello. Like laughing at us, you know. And, um, and I just, you know, talk about aversion. Aversion, aversion, hatred, hatred, homicidal feelings, homicidal <laughs> feelings. And uh, we weren't allowed to leave the grounds, Right, so we couldn't protest. We couldn't engage in nonviolent direct action. We couldn't, you know, we had to pray for the Indian grid, which would often, you know, be blackouts because it was in Bihar, the poorest state in India. We'd pray for those long silences. Ah, oh, great darkness, fantastic. <laughs> and then it'd come back on. You rewind. Hello, hello, hello. And it was just, a, it was amazing training. How do you find peace in the middle of that? Right? which is really why we're practicing. How do you find peace or well-being or freedom or ease and not contract and tighten in the midst of pain or struggle or stress or that which you don't like? And life is full of that. But it's not this loudspeakers, it's your body or it's your partner or it's the economy or it's your kids or it's something, right? How do you find steadiness and presence in the middle of that? That's one of the reasons why we practice, to, to find that ballast to find that equanimity and and over the days you know that grew and it became you know just noise I realized that the sound the suffering in the same way I discovered that earlier the suffering was in my mind hating it not the sound The the sound didn't need to go away for me to find peace the reactivity and the hatred had to cessate before I could find ease that was a great teaching. So when the sound kept coming, as it did through the days, it's like, oh, there's the sound. You know, and I'd laugh or smile or just go, whatever. You know, be times there'd be no sound. It'd be like, oh, where's the sound? <laughs> Missing it a little bit. <laughs> and then I went on to, um, to study with a teacher called Punjaji, or Papaji as he's known, uh, who's an Advaita Vedanta teacher, who was also a deep lover of the Buddha. And so Advaita Vedanta is um, uh, sort of a, the one facet of, of the Hindu tradition, contemplative, deep meditative facet of, of that tradition. And a lot of overlaps with Buddhist practice, uh, particularly in its deeper um, non-dual dimensions. And... Um, studied with him for many years and uh, also had profound uh, impact on my mind and understanding. And um, uh, I think I read that piece uh, from Lao Tzu about this is it, no other place is better, no other time will, will be all turn out and all that the other day. And he always also would say, this is it. What are you waiting for? Freedom isn't anywhere but here. 
Where do you think it is? And the, and the mantra, what, ha- what happens, people go study with him, have these profound awakenings, go home, feel like they lost something, come back, and the mantra was, I had it and I lost it. And you'd say, what do you think you lost? What is that again? There's nothing to gain or lose. It's already, your nature is already awake. It's already free. This is it. And I would hear that and I'd say, this is it? Really? Like, it's crappy, it's polluted. I was in Lucknow, Northern Industrial City, like pollute and blue haze literally going through the market on the tuk-tuks to, the, to his house for satsang. Blue haze. This is it? Really? Like, kind of depressing. I'm, here is my, all my spiritual aspiration. This is it? Just kind of, you know, life and grittiness and stuff. And the other side of me would say, wow, this is it. 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 It's not anywhere else. It's not anything different from this moment, from this experience. And that's very profound. We seek, you know, so many different teachings, not, not seeing it so near, we seek it afar. What a pity, one teacher says. If you ch- look for the truth outside of yourself, it gets further and further away, says another teacher, poem. It's right here, right in the very midst of your presence and awareness right now. That's a whole other body of teaching, but that was very profound to realize all that aspiration and struggle and searching is in vain because it's already here. We're just peeling off the layers that get in the way of understanding and living and abiding in that. And there's, of course, there's a lot of layers and, and things obscuring that, which is why we cultivate awareness and self-awareness and practice and all of that. So I went through this, you know, profound transformations there. And then I, and I came back to London to make some money. I was broke and I was a social worker at the time. And I ended up working in this um, homeless uh, shelter um, that turned out to be extremely badly managed. It was incredibly violent. We were working with um, both a homeless population and there was a lot of alcoholism and and drug addiction. And um, we were working in an area that was very violent. Um, And I felt completely out of my league to to manage that. And and as was the the staff, we ended up getting shut down because we, we couldn't contain the violence. We kept getting attacked as a staff. And, I, and my, my, that spaciousness and presence and freedom and ease that I discovered in India suddenly felt like it was a million miles away. It was very humbling. I was like, wow, to actually live this stuff in the midst of difficult circumstances, that's a whole different level of practice. And I remember being on retreat. I went to see Christopher down in Totnes. He teachers founded a center called Gaia House. And I said, you know, one of the conversations I said, you know, I went to India and I was on retreat with him and Punjaji and had profound uh, experiences of uh, self-dissolving and feeling genuine deep senses of qualities of freedom. And, and then coming back, this feel like the self sense of self-contracted, especially in fear. And he said this line to me, which has always stayed with me. He said, freedom allows self and not self to be. Freedom allows self and not self to be. 
in that the range of human experience at times through practice, through nature, through many other ways, through silence, through intimacy, um, through deep meditation. Right? The sense of self, we can see through the construct of self or we can have an immersive experience that allows that self-referencing, self-constriction to soften, dissolve. And we can abide in that quite deeply. And also there are many times, most of the time, where our sense of self is very constricted in fear, in grasping, in history, in our personality. And we feel very small and very separate and very individual. And between the two, really, our life flows. And so that became a lifelong exploration still of, of understanding the sense of self, how it arises and passes, how it constricts, how it opens and dissolves, how we, and how we construct that whole construction. So I ended up leaving that, well, I didn't leave that job, we got, we got fired. Um, went back to Asia, eventually came to the States, uh, came to Spirit Rock and met Jack and, um, and, and, and began a lifelong sort of connection with this beautiful center, became my spiritual home. I went through teacher training with Jack, uh, not initially. Um, the, what happened when I came to the States is uh, my main, what became my main teacher was I fell in love with the wilderness and I, be, I spent a lot of time out in nature, hiking, backpacking. I started taking my meditation practice outside. I started doing my retreats on my own outside. I began to see how all of the teachings that I was studying in, in, in Buddhist practice, in, in retreats, felt so available and accessible outside. Teachings on interconnectedness, on selflessness, on transience, on love, on interbeing, on um, you name it, they just seem so evident and so visceral and so sensory and alive. And so that became a, a big part of my practice. But I also entered a phase of basically living on retreat most of the time. I, was, I had a lot of zeal, a lot of what they call Dharma Chanda, which is zeal for awakening, zeal for practice. Um, and I had the good fortune to uh, be living very lightly and um, basically would go from long retreat to long retreat and then work a little bit to, to pay for that. And so it was, a, it was some years of developing, you know, and I look back, you could say it's years of developing some paramis. Paramis are qualities of awakening, like concentration, like wisdom, like patience, like um, dedication, perseverance. Um, and it was a very rich time of going really deep into this practice, long, long retreats in silence and really studying what, it, what does it mean to know the mind, to train the mind, you know, doing long uh, concentration retreats, exploring these qualities of absorption and jhanas uh, that are beautiful, refined states of mind, quite serene, blissful, expansive, peaceful, quiet, um, and felt very blessed at having this tremendous good fortune. And I, and I was just very, and I'd do these three-month retreats and I'd look back and I'd say, that was the happiest three months of my life. So much joy and contentment and peace. And so that just became part of my life. 
and um, and at some point I decided to to get ordained and become a monk in Burma. That was the plan. So I I got my visa and set up place to study there and a lot of my friends were going there studying doing these long periods of practice and um, so I was on my way to go there and um, by that time I'd sort of build up a little bit of a spiritual maybe not so little quite large spiritual inflated ego I thought I was like a spiritual hotshot I was young I was like enlightenment or bust and I felt so zealous and and good and pure and holy and a little full of myself you know what happens when you're full of yourself you tend to get you know some life will tend to give you a little you know a little tap you know or slap <laughs> to kind of wake you up I got one of those. So I was in the middle of this three-month retreat. I was on my way to Burma. I was married at the time. My, my wife had given, me, given the blessing for me to go off and ordain, which was very kind of her. And um, I was all, you know, gung-ho. And I was sitting in meditation. It was a beautiful retreat. And uh, this teacher, Michelle McDonald, who is a very beautiful teacher, who really knows about the shadow, knows about trauma and vulnerability and um, rawness of, of, of human pain. Very beautiful, very sort of eccentric teacher. Eccentric is the wrong word, but very real teacher. And so someone's talking in dialogue, a friend of mine with her in the, in the, in the Q&A, and um, she mentions, a word, she mentions she's, she's, they're talking about abandonment. And something struck me in the conversation and this just knife went in and then this huge like tsunami kind of welled up and this whole, I didn't even know what it was at the time, but just, just, just this ocean of tears started coming. And I had an interview meditation meeting that, that morning. I went sitting outside, I was wailing, went to see the teacher, I was wailing. He didn't know what the hell to make of me. He put me in a room by myself, which was very traumatic because it was part of the, you know, it's feeling isolated and abandoned and there's wailing and it just, and it went on and I was just this, this this just, this this ocean of tears and pain, but it wasn't just tears, it was very traumatic. It was like, I was regressed, I was young, there was a lot of early trauma that I had no idea prior to that um, was in there and it became very hard to, to, to do anything, and, and you know, I would, would lie down in my bed, and uh, and just and you know, feeling very regressed, very raw, and feeling just these waves of terror, annihilation, despair, uh, and uh, a whole host of really, really difficult stuff. And I felt ripped open and raw. And whenever I started try to meditate, it just, the intensity became so much I had to back off. And because I was nomadic at the time, I didn't have anywhere. Normally, when you go through that, they, they, you know, it's not the right place for you to be at that level of intensity, particularly when you're regressed, you know, and you're encouraged to to go back home and get support and therapy and whatever you know supports. But I had I was nomadic, so they, there was nowhere for me to go. So they kept me there, and they were very kind and loving and supportive. But they didn't really know how to. They didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was going on. And I was both terrified and traumatized and uh, regressed and um, triggered and, um, 
and then I ended up getting chronic fatigue because the, the, my, my, it kind of basically burnt my circuits out. And I went to England, which was also traumatic because I felt like that's where some of the trauma was happening, started from. And, and I started this long period of recovery with chronic fatigue, and it was incredibly humbling. My spiritual ego, which prior to that was very inflated, suddenly got smashed. And um, I asked my, jo- my, my teacher, Joseph, I said, why, why does it have to be so freaking hard? Why so intense? He says, some people are a little blocked and they need a volcano to open them up. I'm like, thanks. <laughs> I know I'm English and all, but really, is it that bad? <laughs> and, um, but what happened is two things that struck me. Uh, uh, one was, I wasn't able to really do anything except the only th- two qualities that were available to me was awareness and compassion. And I wasn't trying to be compassionate. I didn't think of myself as a compassionate person. But somehow, through, because I'd done a lot of meta practice up to then, and because of that, that, that felt like the fruit of the practice was I, I, the one thing I could do was I could hold the pain with kind of a tender presence which was quite new to me. And I was, I was surprised that that was, because I was kind of flattened. And, and in surrender, you find out what's left. You find out the residue. And, um, and so that, that blowing open of the volcano, what it blew open was my heart. And I think to that point, my heart had been quite frozen. It was quite numb in a certain way, certainly to myself and the deeper layers of pain, but also to other people. I wasn't, I wasn't an unkind person, but it just wasn't that, it wasn't available. And, um, and that, so that completely changed my life. I, I let go of going to Burma. I realized that was not what I needed. I came to California and I'd just been asked to start teaching. And I was like, teach? <laughs> You've got to be kidding. I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. <laughs> like, I need help. <laughs> I'm not going to teach anybody. What do you think? Like, and, uh, and I, got, I got estranged from that teacher for a while who asked me to teach. I, I couldn't hold the discrepancy. And so I decided to go to graduate school to learn about psychology and become a therapist. I, re- I, I thought, if I'm going to learn to work with people, I want to learn how to work with this level of pain and psychology and, and, and trauma. And so I did. And, um, and did a lot of trauma work that healed the layers that, that went on. And... Um, and that entered a very different phase of my life, which is, um, you know, the first phase of my spiritual practice was I was ascending. I was trying to transcend to enlightenment as a way to get rid of all the mess and the crap. And you can do that for a while, but you can't do it for too long before the, the integration needs to happen. And that's what the next phase of my practice was, was learning to integrate, learning how to come into my body, learning to come into my heart, learning to feel pain and the wound and trauma and learn how to um, work with others. And so I did start teaching uh, after I finished grad school. Um, So doing therapy and teaching kind of went hand in hand for me. And so it became a phase in my life where my practice was really about service and teaching and helping others who similarly had traumatic experiences and and learning to do this practice. Um, And the next 
I don't know, 20 years really, it's been 20 years since that time, the, my, my practice feels like it's, the, the practice to me feels like it's a practice of vulnerability. Like to really wake up as a human being in this life means to be vulnerable, means to be open to the fullness of the human condition, which is both beautiful and mystical and joyful, but also to feel the sorrow and the tenderness and the pain and the vulnerability, all of it. And so I felt like now I feel like, you know, I have a lot of range to both feel the depth of despair and the, the, the sublimeness of ecstasy and everything in between. That's, that's being human, right? It's holding both the joy and the sorrow. So this poem uh, really spoke to me and it's been a, a touch point for me over the years. Um, it's from a poet called Rashani. And she writes, there's a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There's a sorrow beyond all grief, which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There's a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. Right? So each of you, I'm sure, have gone through your own journey of pain, of loss, of sorrow, of difficulty and have traversed that or are traversing that and found qualities of resilience, of strength, of joy, of compassion, of love, of feeling our common humanity, of finding strength you never thought you had. So, another phase, and I'm going to wrap up soon here. Um, So, as well as learning to to meet and inhabit my humanness and all of that entailed. Um, it also was a, a phase of, I felt like the, the 90s for me was sort of like my monastic time, even though I wasn't a monk. It felt like I was mostly renunciate, no home, mostly on retreat. And then after that, it was really learning to integrate, which is, which is like what we have to do tomorrow when we leave retreat. Being in relationship, right? The challenge, the beauty, and the challenge of relationship. I wasn't great at that. <laughs> I'm still learning. <laughs> Do we ever get good at that? I don't know. <laughs> um, learning around money, dealing with money, having a livelihood. Dealing with just the challenge of living life and staying sane with work and money and, and all of the stresses that, you know, I... I in my, even though I'm a meditation teacher, Dharma teacher, you know, I fit phases where my life is very busy. I'm traveling, I'm on the road a lot. I'm also maintaining a private practice of students at home and running all kinds of organizations and retreats and, and life sometimes gets very busy and chaotic. How does practice look in the middle of that?
But over, so, so it's been 20 years now since that, that volcano. So I've had time, a lot of time to integrate. Also a lot of time to integrate the beauty and the profundity of those profound awakening times in, in Asia and on retreat. And as I look to my current experience, you know, people might often ask me, so you know, what is it like now? I've, you've been meditating, you've been doing this stuff for 30 plus years. What do you think? <laughs> is it worth it? <laughs> and if I'm honest and I look to my own experience, you know, for the most part what I can say is available is, is tremendous well-being, a lot of ease, inner ease, a lot of inner peace, a lot of capacity to really welcome every part of myself, every experience, pleasant, painful, or neutral, um, a lot of capacity to love and to feel compassion and tenderness for the, the whole you know, journey of life, the beauty and the sorrow of life, I have a lot of capacity to feel joy and delight in the beauty of this, this earth and the people that are here. A lot of deep sadness for the tremendous suffering and senseless pain in the world. I feel very human, very alive, quite awake in certain ways quite free in certain ways, and still plenty of work to do. So I feel very blessed to have this, had this wonderful teachers, wonderful teachings, wonderful opportunities of practice. You know, teaching has been a great vehicle for learning and understanding. And, and at the same time, you know, I, now I, train teachers and do a lot of teacher trainings, mindfulness trainings, nature trainings, all kinds of trainings. And I still feel as, as much a student as I ever did. Right? I'm st- you know, still learning. And I sit in meditation, it's still fresh. I'm still curious about awareness and love and the heart and this moment and not knowing what the next moment's going to reveal. Right? There's still a quality beginner's mind there. So, so I hope in, in whatever way that me sharing this journey that it's helped just give you one window or just, you know, you know, we could all give our stories like this and you'll see there's a whole variety of different ways that our journey unfolds. And maybe you can see elements of your story in that, pieces of your story in that. And, um, you know, I say this as a, I offer this as an um, uh, invitation to uh, really, um, if this path feels resonant, to really, you know, give yourself to it. You know, study, practice, meditate, make time for it. It's a beautiful thing. It's work, it's hard, it's challenging. It will, um, you know, turn over every stone. And, but we'll, we'll give you beautiful capacities of presence, awareness, compassion, wisdom, love, that are all innate within all of us. We just have to 
you know, peel away the clouds that obscure our nature. Okay, thank you for your kind attention. I feel quite vulnerable. <laughs> this is a lot for an English <laughs> reserved <laughs> person to do, but I feel also very tender and sweet and, and being able to share. So I appreciate your kindness. Thank you. Okay, so it's time for dinner. Enjoy the rest of the the day. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.